praying for months. If I'm going to go to Canada in January and it's going to be cold, I want snow. When I looked at my phone last night and saw 100% chance all day, true confession, I'm enough of a little kid and a nerd that I went to bed with a tiny bit of that feeling you used to have on Christmas Eve, like it's Christmas tomorrow. So growing up in Florida, we went to school in Chicago and we certainly experienced snow there. So people who live in snow, because I've never actually had to live in it. At Moody, I didn't shovel a driveway. I, I've never touched a, you know, a snow blower or, or a snow shovel. I've scraped a few windshields, but they said it's easy to love snow if you've never actually lived in it, Todd. And uh, you would get over your romanticism pretty quick, but knowing that I'm gonna get on a plane Monday and get in a, you know, get in a metal tube at 35,000 you know, feet and uh, go back to 80 degrees is, uh, it makes this really fun for me, so. <laughs> but it's my fault, sorry, I'm apparently ruining your day, but it's sure making ours, so. Thank you for your gracious reception last night. You are, uh, you are a very friendly people. And I, you know, once in a while when you go to travel, there's a, there's a temptation to feel a bit nervous if you're going somewhere you've never been before. And uh, I didn't have that particularly for this trip, but I felt that experience. And then, but it's always been rebuked by this. Then you meet the people of God and you just go, the people of God are my favorite people on the planet. And the fact that we haven't met yet, it's just like going to a family reunion and you're the second cousins. I haven't had the chance to learn your name yet. So uh, it's, it's always a silly thing with the real people of God to ever be anything but excited to meet your extended family. So you've extended that love and hospitality to us already. Thank you very, very much. Before we look at this morning, can I just, uh, I was thinking this, this morning about maybe a way to review for those of you who weren't here yesterday, uh, last night. Would you just turn to First Peter for just a moment, chapter 2. Because last night we looked at a, a number of passages, for the most part a, a sweep of, of what Solomon wrote in Proverbs about the blessings of righteous speech and the dangers of unrighteous speech and the, the sin of talking too little and, and, and isolating, the sin of talking too much and not being a good listener, the sin of angry speech, the sin of deceptive speech. And, and having looked at all that, just, just a couple of reminders this morning. Number one, that Jesus said that that speech is a behavior that rises out of the heart. And if you're, I wouldn't want you to walk away from last night and think, I just need to work on my tongue. I would have to change my heart in order for my speech to be changed. For instance, a lot of angry speech comes as a result of a sense of entitlement in the heart. Uh, life shouldn't be this hard. People shouldn't inconvenience me. Uh, things should never break. Children should always behave. My spouse should always treat me like the wonderful person I am, et cetera, et cetera. And when those presuppositions are existing foundationally in the heart, playing like a soundtrack, that's often the reason you're hearing the kind of speech that you're hearing. Uh, a fear that, um, a fear of man rather than a fear of God is often what leads to lying and deception. And, and so there are heart issues underneath each of those uh, sinful speech patterns that we looked at. And, First uh, Peter 2, 24, this, uh, 23 rather, would be a good example of how our Savior, uh, what was going on in the mind of Christ that, that monitored his own speech. Look at, you know, let's start in verse 21. Uh, coming out of a section on how to respond as a slave to uh, a cruel master, the Apostle Peter writes, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Now, to be clear, 
Jesus is more than an example. He did not come to be an example. That's, that's what liberal denominations are saying every day. Just follow Jesus as a pattern and an example. He came to be an atoning sacrifice, a substitute, to absorb on the cross the wrath of God we deserved for our sin. He came to be a redeemer. But he is certainly in every way an example. And in this case, he's an example of how to respond when you're being treated wrong. And so it says this, he, he, he's an example for you to follow in his steps. In what sense? In regards to suffering. And then quoting from a prophecy about Christ, it says this, Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't sin when he was sinned against. And the deception we guarded our hearts against last night, Jesus was never guilty of being deceptive in his speech. And look at verse 23, while being reviled, that re reviling is being sinned against verbally. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, that's not verbal, that's physical. While suffering, he uttered no threats. And stop there for a moment. When I was a young man and I would read that and I would just think, Jesus, you are, you are so admirable because you had that ability to bite your tongue in a moment. And you just had a lot more self-control than I do. You thought of the perfect zinger comeback. You just never said it out loud. And Jesus is far more majestic than that. As, as the perfect God-man come to save. As God come in the flesh, he, it's not in his heart to revile back. So what does go on in the mind of Christ when people are throwing verbal and physical abuse against him? What does he do? More importantly, what does he think? And what Peter does next is sort of open up the heart of the mind of Jesus and saying, when he's not reviling and he's not threatening when physically abused, what is he doing? And look down at what it says. He, he, he uttered no threats, but what did he do instead? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. What gave Jesus the ability to, to not to not fight back verbally or physically was his view of God. He kept repeatedly as a process entrusting himself to one who would judge fairly. In other words, I don't have to rescue my own reputation. I don't have to exact revenge. I don't have to get what's coming to me. I will leave that to my father. So such a robust view of God's justice, such a robust view of God's care for him, that he says, I, I, don't, I don't need to fight back. And so this is an example of how heart and thinking and faith affect speech. So in essence, what the, a verse like this would teach us, and this, this is worthy of a great deal of meditation and thought on your part, and that is, how is my view of God affecting my speech? And so you're tempted to speak sinfully or to not speak when you should. You've got to be saying, what attribute of God would I have to deny or ignore right now to participate in that communication sin? And that's really getting down to the core of the matter. That's draining the cup all the way to the bottom. That's helpful in a moment of temptation to say, what view of God is being distorted in my thinking? What word of God am I tempted to doubt? What warning of God am I not heeding? What command am I not obeying? What promise of God? Jesus is clinging to a promise here. God will judge righteously. And I will leave that in the hands of God and not exact personal vengeance. And so digging underneath your verbal sins are going to be things going on in your heart. And just simply be asking the Lord, show me what's going on. And that's how the Lord demystifies you to you. 
What you, none of us can afford is another 10 years where my mind and my behavior and my life is a mystery to me. Why do I react the way I do? Seems so instinctive, so reflexive, so habitual. Lord, please, I can't, you know, we talked last night, I can't repent uh, when I, uh, vague repentance leads to vague growth. Specific confession and repentance starts leading to specific growth. So this would be one of a myriad passages we could go to to say, just to remind ourselves, you can't walk out of last night saying, I've got to curb my tongue only, but to say to the Lord, when I'm sinning with my mouth, I'm often, there's something going on in my heart. Let me give you a quick example. When I was first beginning to understand sin at this, you know, there's, there's the sin you observe in life, words and deeds, then underneath the surface, there are these heart issues going on, and those heart issues are all being influenced by your view of God. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when I first began to see sin this way, when I first, uh, we had two children and they were young, and uh, one day on my day off, I was, uh, dads, you'll know what I mean, I was, I was fully engaged in playing with the kids. You know how sometimes you go through the act of playing with the kids, but your, your head is actually somewhere far away? I was like one of those moments where I, on, my, on the remote, I found my play channel. I'm fully engaged, undistracted, unburdened, having a ball, wrestling and playing. And in the middle of that, we had, <coughs> excuse me, we had a mailbox right by the front door and it creaked when the, when the mailman opened it. I heard the mailman come and so I said, hold on a second kids. And I ran, I took out the mail, I'm just flipping through it real quick and I, what's this? And I found this unanticipated bill uh, that we had no money to pay. And we, after our second child, that was definitely, we were the brokest we'd ever been. We, we always said we were one paycheck away from bankruptcy each, each month and trusting the Lord. And by, we were never in debtor's prison. <laughs> All the things you worry about, the Lord takes care of. But, so we were struggling. And so no, no, no fat in the budget for this. And it wasn't, it wasn't consumer debt. I don't remember what it was. Isn't it funny? Here's this great anxiety I felt, and I don't even remember. Uh, but uh, it made me very anxious. And I suddenly felt a lot of pressure. I mean, cold hands and, huh. So I, I plopped down in the chair and the two kids, they're still in play mode, so they come from either side, da, 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 boom, and hit me. And, and a few minutes ago, that would have been a laughter and hilarity. I was like, knock it off. And they're like, what happened to dad? And I just said, uh, let's just, you know, let's go eat lunch. So went in the kitchen. My repertoire is fairly limited in the kitchen, so mac and cheese I could do. So I said, just sit at the table and we'll have lunch. And they said, Dad, Daddy, what's the matter? And you know what you do as a dad, you want to protect, so you just say, uh, nothing. Everything's fine. And I'm stirring the mac and cheese and just fretting. What am I going to do? We do not have the resources for this. Da, 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 da. Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Uh, it takes enough time to cook that I was convicted of the harsh way I'd spoken to the children. So we sit down at the table, and before I pray for lunch, I say, hey, kids, please forgive Daddy for the impatient way he spoke to you. And they said, of course, we forgive you. And then they said again, what's the matter, Daddy? And I said, nothing. So I prayed, asked the Lord to forgive me, and we went through lunch, and I don't really remember the rest of the day. But sooner or later, it was probably at least an hour, before the thought occurred to me, about this you know, menacing piece of mail that's come in that I haven't prayed. I haven't even thought about the Lord. It was as if in that moment for an hour or two, I was in practice an atheist. There was no God. It was all on me, 100% on my shoulders, and I got no resources to take care of this. 
But my heart eventually thawed out, and I was convicted then not just of my harshness with my children, but, but a low and unworthy thoughts of God that somehow he had abandoned me, or he wouldn't take care of me, or he wasn't sufficient to meet our need. And so, uh, so, I, you know, so, so the first layer of sin I was immediately convicted of was how I spoke. The next layer in the process of thinking about this, this process was the fear that gripped my heart. Lord, forgive me for just sinful fear. But where did that fear, where, where was that root of fear growing from? So the kids saw the visible fruit of harsh speech. In the heart underneath the surface of that tree is this root of fear growing. But that fear grows in a certain pH of soil. And, and the soil would have been uh, wrong thoughts of God. Or in my case, for a little while, no thoughts of God. And that's what I mean. That's the kind of thing you want to go after. So by the time the day was over, I was asking the Lord in the privacy of my heart, Lord, forgive me not just for yelling at my kids and not just for the fear that I experienced, the anxiety, the worry, which your word says not to worry and that it is a sin, but ultimately all the way, if I'm going to clean this cup to the very bottom, that speech was driven by low, unworthy, unbiblical thoughts about you. And that's at the core of it. And when we learn to think about sin in that way, a couple of things happen. In the moment of temptation, you get wiser. I see what's going on here. I'm not just tempted to yell. I'm tempted to fear. And I'm not just fearing. I'm, <clears throat> I'm not believing rightly about my God. Also, the other way it's helpful is after you've sinned, when you're repenting, you can repent at a more profound level. There was more than going on here than, than my unkind speech. There's something else driving all this, Lord, and I need you to use your word to blow the fog out of my head, demystify this process, so I don't walk through another decade of my life going, I don't know why those kinds of things really just trip fear or anger or uh, you know, pride is revealed in me in those moments. So that's the kind of thing that we've got to go after, and I make no apologies for what we learned from Solomon last night, but to be convicted of wrong speech alone would probably be a mistake for us and leave you frustrated and just more condemned if you're not careful. You, we're not after behavioral modification in the Christian life. The world can accomplish that. They can kick back habits and put on new habits. It, we have to have our mind renewed through the scriptures, which means we've got to figure out what's gone wrong in my thinking. And if you think about it, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan did two things. Doubt the goodness of God. God's not protecting you by saying don't eat from the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's not protecting you. He's holding out on you. He's threatened by the thought that you might become like him. You'll be like him knowing good and evil. A partial truth. What Satan didn't explain to them is, oh, you will know good and evil. The reason you're going to know evil, you'll know evil so well. You want to know why? Here's what he's not going to tell. You will become evil. See, God knows good and evil, and God knows evil objectively, not because he has ever done evil or thought evil or been evil. He can objectively know of evil. Your experience, my experience with evil, is up close and personal. We became evil, and every man, woman, boy, and girl that was ever born after Adam inherited that evil nature. And, of course, God has come in Christ to what God has done everything necessary for evil people like me and you to be given a new heart and a righteous standing before him. And he's accomplished all of that through Christ. And so 
Satan is, he really has no new tricks up his sleeve. Doubt the goodness of God. Don't, don't, don't rely on his character, number one. Then number two, doubt the word of God. God said you will die, and I say to you, you surely shall not die. The first lie spoken on the planet. And so Satan is really just reiterating in new clothes those same two, seeding those same two wrong thoughts. His word is not, is, it doesn't have veracity. You, don't, you cannot trust his word. You need not be afraid of his judgment. What is it they doubted? The first lie against scripture was not a doubting a promise. It was doubting a warning. And so I wonder what went through their minds. They bit and they did not drop dead. Did they think hmm, Satan was right? But of course, we know it would just be a matter of time. It's like, it's like cutting a, a rose in the rose garden. You bring it in the house. It sure looks alive for a few days. It's there beautifully, but it's already cut off from the source of life. It's just a matter of time until the rose stops, starts dropping petals. So they died. They were separated from God in that instance. Death is the misery of separation from God because of sin. So those two same things are what's happening. It, underneath that moment of speaking a lie or a harsh word, lies the same, somewhere you're giving into the same two categories. What word of God are you doubting? Is it, a, is it a warning? Is it a command that you're not obeying? Is it a promise you're not in faith gonna cling to? And what attribute or character of God are you being tempted to doubt right now? So that's what's, the, if you wanna repent of the kind of speech we looked at last night that doesn't please the Lord, we have some heart work to do. Today we're gonna to continue to talk about communication in this session. And I just want you to look at the main points for just a moment, because you could think of this as communication as related to, think of it this way, we're gonna to address today what happens when communication is broken. There's been a communication breakdown. Uh, what happens when there's been a conflict and maybe words have not been honest or unkind words that have been spoken have damaged the relationship. And So point one, just read these main points with me for just a moment. Point one, conflicts can be avoided Sometimes by overlooking a spouse's sin. And then look at the next line underneath that. I just want to show you a common denominator between a couple of things. Overlooking is based on God's mercy towards sinners, not sinful fear. Sometimes what we call overlooking is just avoidance. I'm just going to overlook that. No, you're just too scared to address that. What, how, <clears throat> when you're motivated to address a sin or to overlook a sin, it must be motivated by mercy. And so sometimes what we've called overlooking is really just being a spiritual chicken. It's a lack of spiritual courage and trust. Look at the second main point before we look at some of these passages. Conflicts can be resolved sometimes by addressing a spouse's sin. Sometimes by overlooking, motivated by mercy. Sometimes by addressing. And look at that next line. Confrontation is based on God's mercy towards sinners not sinful anger. Think of it this way. <clears throat> Forgive, picture a, picture a, um, a fraction. In the numerator on top, you've got forgiveness, overlooking, and confrontation. Then draw your fractional line and put a common denominator underneath all three of those, and the, and the common denominator is God's mercy. Mercy is the motivator for overlooking. Mercy must be the over, the, rather, the motivator for confronting. And mercy, of course, and probably intuitively, is the motive for forgiveness. 
And that's important because sometimes what we say when we're overlooking, it's not really mercy, it's fear. And sometimes when we're confronting, it isn't mercy, it's anger. I'm going to get this off my chest. I've always wanted to say this to you, and now is the moment. That's devoid of mercy. I'm not speaking for your good. I'm speaking for my good. Sometimes when we're overlooking sin, I'm not overlooking it for your good, out of mercy to you, but out of fear for me, what would happen if I was to actually address this topic? And so I want those things to kind of be fixed in our mind that mercy is the great motivator. Whether you're forgiving, overlooking, or confronting, all three of those, excuse me, motivated by the mercy of God. So let's look at this first point together. Conflicts can be avoided by overlooking a spouse's sin. George, if you'll forgive me, I know it was given a schedule. What time does this session wrap up? Ten thirty? It's nine o'clock. You're telling me I have an hour and a half? Oh, I love this church. Nine thirty. Thank you. That's what I figured. That's more realistic. <laughs> All right. First point: conflict can be avoided by overlooking a spouse's sin. Not every. Think about it. This: if you addressed. Every offense ever committed by your spouse against you in your marriage, you would have a full-time job, and that is all you would ever talk about. Because offenses are committed against us in a marriage on a regular basis, and surely the Lord does not require of us that every one of those moments be addressed. So how would I know when when it's just right to overlook it? Well, here's some passages that will help us. Romans 2.4, merciful overlooking. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In other words, Paul is addressing the gospel. How does God treat us? Well, we certainly are convicted of our sin, or we would never feel our need for Christ. But when the Lord begins to open your eyes that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, what begins to impress you initially is the wrath of God that I deserve. God should have judged me rightly for who I am and what I do. And then when you discover that he was motivated by mercy, he saw the plight we were in. Uh, It's a plight of our own making. And God didn't look down from heaven and say, you made the mess, lie in it. That would be a very human reaction. God simultaneously is offended by our sin, and simultaneously it says that his bowels are moved. That's that's attached to this word mercy. You see the plight of someone else, and you let it affect you. And sometimes, you know how even physically, if you were were to see a toddler running out in front of a a freight truck going 80, 80, 80 an hour, you would, uh, your stomach would be abhorrent to the thought of the harm that would come to that child. Inexplicably, God the righteous judge, while offended by my sin, simultaneously felt mercy towards it. It made his stomach hurt to see the plight that was the result of choices I made. And he's moved by mercy. And and Paul is saying this, do you think lightly of that? Don't you remember that when you began to be panicked and convicted over your sin, thinking just at the time when you're thinking, there's no hope for me, God would rightly judge me, send me to hell forever, and that would be just. And then it would suddenly, somebody tells you about Christ and relief and pardon, and you see the kindness of God. And that's what led you to repentance. Then I'll flee to such a God. I'll run and find my spiritual refuge in Christ. 
And so that's the kind of mercy that motivates you sometimes just to overlook a sin. Further in Romans, Paul writes in chapter 9, God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. If God can endure with patience much sin, is it not possible that you and I should also endure with much patience sin committed against us? Proverbs 19, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. Listen to this. It is his glory to overlook an offense or a transgression. There are several Hebrew words for sin. Transgression is, is a fascinating word. It literally means to cross a line. This is, I know what the standard is. This is not a sin of ignorance. This is not a crime of passion. This is premeditated. I know I shouldn't, and I do it anyway. It's that thing in you when somebody says, don't walk on the grass. You know, I didn't want to walk on the grass until you tell me I can't walk on the grass, and now I am darn tootin' going to walk on the grass. That is transgression. Willful sin, knowing sin. And it is a man's glory at times to overlook it, motivated by mercy. Ephesians 4, with gentleness, humility, and patience, showing tolerance for one another. Literally, did you know the New Testament has a word and addresses in the body of Christ, there are going to be people in this church that just bug you. And the Bible says, in mercy, gentleness, humility, put up with them. So don't be surprised when there are people in this church you have to put up with, or guest preachers you don't care for, but you signed up and now you're stuck. We, everybody's not everybody's cup of tea. We know that. The Lord puts us together on purpose and says, be a humble man. Be a gentle woman. Put up with it. You don't, need, you don't even need to talk about it. Put up with one another. Colossians 3, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Patience just being long-suffering, willing to suffer long. So how would you know if you should, <clears throat> something's come up and it's not just a personality trait, you could document that it's a sin. You were just sinned against. Should I speak to this person or should I not address this sin? <clears throat> Most books I've read on the topic fall into what I call the, the fallacy of the, the big and little fallacy. The way you decide whether to address or neglect some, or, or overlook something is, uh, is it a big sin or it's a little sin? And in large measure, I know what those authors mean, but if it's a spiritual principle, it ought to, it ought to be able to be pushed all the way to its extremes and still hold up. And I would just say once in a while, <clears throat> there are big sins that could be unaddressed. Let me explain what I mean. Let's say that Tandy and I are working on a, a I'm working on a, a sinful pattern in my heart that regularly crops up in our marriage. This is purely theoretical. There is nothing like this. But <clears throat> I have this friend who, so Tandy and I are working on something. Uh, it's, been, it's been addressed. It's not an elephant in the room. This is something we discussed. There's freedom. And we might have just been through one of these cycles and addressed it. And sadly, 15 minutes after that, it might happen again. Or the next day. Or, uh, and and there, there'll just be times when, when we recognize in each other's lives, though that's a big sin, though that's a, a big issue we're working on, it's, it's thoroughly addressed. We pray about it. We talk about it. And I can overlook that one in mercy. Because I know, we just, I know you're working on it. No harm will come to you if I don't address that sin because I know what's happening. I'm not even going to mention it. So that's where it could be a big sin and still be overlooked. At other times, the, the, the reason I would call this a fallacy of big and little is there are little sins that must be addressed 
while they're little for the good of the other person. So sometimes you don't just overlook it. It's just a small sin. We'll overlook it. This is particularly true in parenting. There are small sins in your small people that if you overlook them, you will pay a dear price for it. And so in essence, as you're raising young children to just say, add 10 years and 80 pounds to that behavior and do you like it? I'm not talking about progressing. We're not talking about immaturity in children. We're we're talking about sinfulness. There's a difference between developmental immaturity and and willful sinfulness, and and they have to be addressed. And we'll talk about some of those later today. But uh, so there are times when little sins have to be addressed. Uh, the scripture says that it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, and there are times when big sins can be overlooked. So I think the better way to say. What, why would I or no, would I not address that sin? And if your answer is the clean answer of, I think it would be merciful not to speak of it right now. Or, I think mercy would require me to address this sin. So that's a, I, that's a much more solid biblical, what would mercy require? Being moved for the plight of that sinner, I need to give them not what they deserve, but what they need and if mercy says what they would need right now as I perceive it as a, a fallible human is, is to not talk about that, then, then you're on solid ground. But if what they need is someone who loves them enough to talk to them about it. So I would say don't decide is it a big or little sin. Just use the mercy filter. What does mercy require in this moment? So give you a real-time example, Tandy. Uh, let's say when our little ones were sick, if you've got young kids, you probably experienced this, the domino effect of illness. You know, child one gets it, next domino, child two gets it, child three, child four, child five. And before you know it, mommy's been home for five weeks from church with kids getting sick week after week. We always had a love-hate relationship with the nursery. Love the nursery because I Tandy could listen to a sermon undistracted. Hate the nursery because that's where they get sick. So that's life. That's how immune systems are built, etc. But you know, if, if uh, the kids have been sick and there's been a string of sleepless nights for her and maybe st stomach flu is particularly notorious for unpleasantness. And, uh, and so, you know, two or three nights of that and Tandy's been up and I come home from work and I've had a hard day and uh, I would like to be greeted as the phenomenal prince that I am. And she greets me in a less than thrilling way here. Could you just deal with this or... <laughs> And, uh, you know, part of my heart will say, well, hello to you, too. Yes, my day was fine. Thanks for asking. Uh, I'm not going to, am I going to confront her with unbiblical, you didn't honor me, as the scripture says, to honor me. I could document that was a, that was a marital failure right there. Well, first of all, what an idiot. <laughs> but haven't we all been idiots? Every man in the room is going, hmm. In other words, I, mercy requires me to, that's not Tandy's typical behavior, this is not a, a pattern in her life. No harm will come to Tandy if I don't address in this moment this, you know, because it's not a pattern. This isn't typical. In mercy, what I say is, you, you deprive me of one night's sleep and I'm a disaster. She's been deprived of several nights sleep in a row caring for sick children so that I could go and continue my ministry as a pastor. So those merciful thoughts, just at time, mercy just says, you don't address that. At other times, I'll be walking through the church parking lot and see one of our, our seminary students, a pastor in training that's in my life, and I will just have, not looking for it, accidentally overheard an exchange between he and his wife as they were getting in the car in a tone of voice that, that wasn't good. And so the next time I sit down with that guy, mercy requires to say, hey, I wasn't snooping on you, but I couldn't help but overhear. 
Is that, is that typical? Is that a pattern? And have you addressed that? Because you really sinned against your wife that day. Have you followed up? And mercy now requires that uncomfortable uh, confrontation. So I don't think mercy would require me to overlook in that case. So uh, mercy is the deciding factor. Look at the next point in your outline. The same is true for when do I confront? <clears throat> well, I confront when I'm motivated out of mercy. But turn to Matthew 7 for just a moment. This is towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is addressing the issue of confrontation, noticing sin in another's life. <clears throat> Chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. That is probably the most often quoted verse by unbelievers uh, towards a Christian who's sharing the gospel or uh, they, they know that you disapprove of something in their life. Don't judge. You can't judge. You shouldn't judge. You can't see my heart. That's, that's, that's the ultimate gag uh, order that, that, that the world tries to put in a Christian's mouth. As if that were the only verse in the Bible. And as if, as if that's all Jesus said even in this paragraph. Do not judge lest you be judged. As the, as the paragraph unfolds, Jesus is talking about a harsh kind of judgment. Uh, it's not a word we use often, but censorious judgment. Merciless, swift justice. Do not judge in that sense and uh, so that you will not be judged in that way. Look, look, look what Jesus says in verse 2. This is, this is a terrifying warning. For in the way you judge, parenthesis others, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured out to you. This is not a, a genuine believer. You should be in fear. If you're ever harsh, now you're in trouble. God will be harsh and swift and censorious and merciless in his judgment. No, ultimate mercy has been shown to a Christian in Christ. But what he's saying is this. If as a pattern in your life, you are intolerant, impatient, and execute swift justice on all who wrong you, then all you're demonstrating is that you've never tasted the mercy of God yourself. You've never been humbled to see how merciful God would have to be to you to be, enter a relationship with you. The kindness shown through Christ. So this is a warning. In other words, swift, censorious judgment, harsh, merciless, uh, impatience with others who wrong you is a characteristic of unbelievers. And they will be judged by God in that same merciless way at some future point when the window of mercy we now live in is closed. And then Jesus, in, you know how if you're familiar with the passage, you begin paraphrasing it in your mind and you start to lose details. This is what happened to me with this passage. What I would have said happens next is now a flow chart, an order of events. So if you see sin in somebody else's life, first deal with your sin, then deal with their sin. And that is true, but that's not what Jesus does next. What he says next is an exposing, amazing question. He says this, why do you look? Why do you even notice? What does it say about you that you are prone to see? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Before Jesus says what he will say, first remove your lumber yard. <laughs> I don't have a log in my eye, I have an entire lumber yard. First remove that, 
then remove the speck. But before he even goes there, he just asks that diagnostic question. What does it say about you that you have such a keen eye to spot sins in others? And such a blinded eye when it comes to seeing your own sin. He asks a second similar rhetorical question in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Or not why, in this case, how. How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own. What does it say? Why are you like that? How would it be possible for you to address someone else's sin with glaring sin in your own life? <clears throat> Verse 5, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is more than a flow of events. This is more than a flow chart. First, remove A, remove sin. B, address others. Before you, even would before you would even remove your own sin, you have to deal with these heart-searching questions. Why are you like that? Can you imagine Jesus Christ? I mean, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and you're sitting there. And with his piercing holy gaze, he says to you, why do you have a tendency to be able to paint a detailed Sistine, the, the, chapel of the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, a detailed mural of those who sin against you, and as I heard Pastor Jerry say one time, he says, I can, I can paint a detailed mural of other people's sin against me. <clears throat> but then when it comes to my sin, I'm like looking through a keyhole going, well, I kind of did something wrong. What does that say? It says I'm a hypocrite. It says I'm proud. It says I'm, I'm entitled. No one should sin against me. So really, if Jesus, if I were going to be utterly candid when he says, why, Todd, why do you notice other people's sin and don't see your own? Why do you see their speck and don't see your log? At my worst, if I was really candid, you know what I would have to say to Jesus? Because you're wrong. I'm not the one with the log. I am the one with the speck. They are the one with the log. Now, I'm far too religious to say that to Christ. But in the privacy of your heart, have you not thought it? Yes, I'm not perfect, but if you had to live with him, pastor, believe me. Or, brother, this woman, the taming of the shrew's got nothing on her. As if other people's sin was the reason I sinned. That really, you know one of the hardest verses to believe is when James, when it says, each one sins when he's carried away and enticed by his own strong cravings. That's not how it feels. No, no, no. I'm a perfectly fine person. I'm a giant bundle of neutrality, generally kind until you wrong me, and then I'm sinful. No, that is not true. That stuff is bubbling in the cauldron all the time, just waiting for an opportunity. That's who we are. That's why we needed a savior, not an example. Justification by faith, what a glorious doctrine. If all God did was wipe the slate clean, hey, Todd, your life's been a wreck, and today I pardon you of all your sins. You are now neutral. That does me no good. Because an hour later, I will spray graffiti on my heart again, and it'll be dirty. I need to not only have my sins erased and pardoned and forgiven and removed, I need the righteousness of Christ put on me like a robe that I did not weave or earn. So Jesus wears my filthy rags on the cross. I get his righteousness. I don't need a clean heart. I don't need a fresh start. I need a new heart. I need a new standing before God based on someone else's work, Jesus Christ. 
So that's what's going on here. So look back now. Conflicts can be resolved by addressing a spouse's sin. Step one, remove your logs. <clears throat> Do you understand what a different... And then Jesus says, then you can address the speck in your brother's eye. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus knows how much hard work it will do to A, identify your logs, B, confess your logs, C, repent of your logs, and, and, and D, actually begin seeing change happen in your life. And when you go after your sin like that, the hard work, the frustrating failure, the slow pace at which we grow and are sanctified, then when it is time to talk to somebody else about their sin, your vocabulary has changed. Your tone of voice has changed. Your timing has changed. Your sense of urgency has changed. The, the mercy that would flow to you, look, I know how hard it is to work on sin, and I got a, bu a bucket load of my own. But I, got, I, I just, you know, I, I need to talk to you about something. Is this a good time? If not, you know, let's set up a time to talk. And do you see how more mercifully disposed you are if you've been busy in log removal? So be the spiritual lumberjack in your own life. And then when it comes to pulling up saplings in somebody else's life, and it really will shrink their sin. Their sin which loomed as so irritating, so provoking, so awful, so wrong. It's just gotten shrunk to its right size because you say, no, I've got a Himalayan mountain of sin of my own. And your little molehill, we can talk about it. But for your good, I think I should point this out in you. But not because I'm bitter, not because I'm angry, not, not out of a well of hurt anymore. So before you address your spouse's sin, acknowledge your own sin that may have contributed to the breakdown or this conflict. Another thing, before you address sin in somebody else's life, for it to be driven by mercy, distinguish between stuff that bugs you that isn't sinful and stuff that bugs you that is. So in other words, you're not, you don't want to take this principle and, and call the speck in their eye a speck. If it's not even a speck, it's just different. John Piper, in his excellent book on marriage called This Momentary Marriage, Piper said this, there's stuff in my, in my spouse that's sinful, and then there's just stuff in my spouse that's strange. It's just foreign to me. It's just different. It isn't wrong. So is what offending you actually offending God? Is it an offense against him? So distinguish between real sin and just mere differences. And of course, as we've already said, distinguish between confrontation motivated by mercy and confrontation motivated by anger. And some of you would say, well, I'm not angry, I'm just hurt. Code word. <laughs> it's like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Okay, so frustrated, mild form of anger, whatever you want to call it that, it's still, it's still simple. The problem with using a word like frustration is you won't find it in your Bible, so there'll be no passage to sting it and to convict it. So just call it what the Bible calls it, it's anger. I had a friend, who, a physician friend who told me that one time that an itch physiologically is exactly the same physiological electrical impulse as deep pain. It's just a, a less electrical impulse. An itch and agony are the same thing. Just so, so maybe you just think the frustration is just the itch of, of spiritual nerve pain. And so call, call it what it is. So if, you're, if your heart is grounded and founded and grateful in the mercy that God has shown you, when you talk to other people about their sin, you are a different person. And when you begin to believe the lie that you're something special and I'm not all that bad and I'm eh, slightly a cut above the average bear, smarter than the average bear is, then, uh, then boy, you forget that and now you come in self-righteousness and sometimes fury as you confront sin. Uh, Galatians 6 would say that we have to prepare to speak to other Others with gentleness. In other words, address sin in their life 
in the way you would want sin addressed in your life. <clears throat> Next page of your handout. Communication can be restored. So if communication has been broken, sometimes it's, we overlook, sometimes we confront, and we've got some biblical criteria now to decide and to understand what that would look like. Sometimes communication will be restored because your, your spouse has mustered <clears throat> the courage and gone to the hard work. They've removed their own logs. They've come to you in a biblical manner, and they've pointed out a, a blind spot in your life. And one of the sweetest things you could do, one of the signs of growing faith and maturity, is a willingness to receive that correction. Just listen to these, these many proverbs on receiving instruction from others. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof will go astray. You're reproved by your spouse <clears throat> or a brother and sister in this church. You're going astray already if you won't listen. Proverbs 12, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. You ready for this one? It's not me. It's, don't blame me. It's the Bible. He who hates reproof is stupid. The Bible doesn't, we don't use that word in our family, but the kids love to point out the Bible uses it. That's great. You can't. <laughs> That's sort of a double standard. It sure is. <laughs> so you are stupid, spiritually dull. Spiritually, you're being a dunce if you're not willing to listen to reproof. Throughout Proverbs, what you'll find is one of the main characteristics of a fool is their unwillingness to listen. And one of the amazing characteristics of a wise man is his willingness to receive correction. A fool rejects his father's discipline. Proverbs 15, grievous is the punishment for the one who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof, not this time, you're not stupid, you will die. There's a spiritual price to be paid. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself. But he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. And you can read the rest of these Proverbs later. Receiving correction is a sign of wisdom and humility. The only thing that makes a man not want to listen, the scriptures would teach us, is, the, is folly and pride. And so if you struggle receiving correction, you've got, you, there's a deeper spiritual symptom that's going on. Pride is growing in your heart, which means your view of God has sunk and become deficient because pride cannot exist in a heart where a high and lofty view of God is held. Think of it, it's like a, a scale with a fulcrum in between. Your view of man and your view of God are inextricably linked. A high view of God, by definition, sinks your view of man to where it should be. Get those things reversed when you begin to think more highly of yourself than you ought. You know automatically my view of God is sinking. Sometimes I've, I've told my kids that <clears throat> when I read my Bible and I have my view of God recalibrated again to, to see him high and lifted up as he is and in all his perfections and admirable majesty in all his intimidating glory and, and the, yet the, the, the call to come near to him. That, that As I'm reading my Bible that's what happens. I feel like I'm a uh, like, a, like a ball or a balloon or a float that floats in the pool behind our, our house. It's like I can, my view of God is getting inflated with an air pump. And I can almost hear it as I close my Bible to proceed through the rest of my day. I can almost hear the my view of God just beginning to deflate. And that's why mature believers meditate on the law of the Lord all day long. Just constantly keeping that view of God where it should be, which protects us from vulnerability to temptation. 
So receiving correction from the Lord, some people get offended by preaching. The preacher will say something convicting. and uh, Listen, I, I, on Sundays, I put on my spiritual steel-toed boots. I, if, I w- if I came to church and Jerry's preaching did not step on my toes, I would think something was wrong. I must not have been listening. I must have been distracted. I want the word of God to come. Reprove me. Show me where I'm wrong. Only the grace of God. That is is a supernatural response. That is not a natural human response. We sort of do this. You've told, okay, okay, I hear you. Anything else? Could we minimize the speech about what I'm doing wrong? Got it. Got it. And instead, wisdom would say, is there anything else? Christians are given a grace to say, tell me more. Tell me more about how my sin impacts you. That, that, that's not natural. That's, that's supernatural. Who can do that? Only people who are certain that they, the A, they're not perfect, that's pride and humility, and B, they don't, they don't expect perfection and they don't mind imperfection being pointed out. Humility that says, show me where I'm wrong. This is, this is a great weakness in many of us. This is probably the hardest thing for for Tandy to live with in our marriage. I'm hard to correct. And I've told her recently, I'm, I'm, I'm going after this. This is like the final frontier in our marriage. I do not want to die. I do not want our marriage to end with you still having to work up courage to come and talk to me. And so uh, this is a, it's a potential spiritual disqualifier. It's a big deal. And uh, preachers are, she said, honey, I feel, she's made it easy, she's been kind. She said, I feel for you. Let's be honest, you have, you have to be right for a living. You know, if, if, you, if you say wrong thing, you preach, teach, or counsel wrong things, there's an awful lot of things that could happen that could be spiritually disastrous. So I understand that you have to be right for a living. It just, please understand, it doesn't mean at home that you always are. It's like, I get it, I get it. So communication is sometimes restored by be your willingness to receive the correction. So you really have to ask yourself this. Am I a wise person? who willingly receives and maybe even seeks out and solicits correction. Please show me where I need to grow. Or am I a proud and foolish person that says, let's please minimize all discussions of my deficits. Until until gospel love, your certainty that you were unacceptable to your creator and your judge and that you were made acceptable in Jesus Christ until you're certain that the only one who had a right to reject you has received you and loved you, it will be much harder to receive correction because we'll spend our whole life doing what Adam and Eve did, running into the bushes and creating coverings for ourselves, trying to hide both sinful things and things that aren't sinful, just weaknesses in me that I don't want anyone to discover. And when gospel love eradicates and envelops and replaces that fear, it is much easier to receive correction. So in some ways, we're back to that view of God again. If, you're, if it's hard for you to receive correction, perhaps your trust and faith is weak in the acceptance you've been shown in Jesus Christ, the peace that you have with God because he chose to love you. He is not tolerating you in heaven. All right, Murray, there you go again. God's not pleased with my sin. He's grieved by my sin. But I have been made accepted in Jesus Christ. And so sometimes, if, boy, if it's hard for you, that may mean you're still a little insecure and unbelieving that you've actually been loved by God. And so God saw all your weaknesses and loved you. 
So if your spouse finds one or two that you haven't seen before, isn't that okay? Well, yeah, if you're certain God loves you, but not so much if, you're, if your peace with God is easily shaken. Next page in your handout. Communication can be restored by forgiving your sinful spouse. And I think what wisdom would require at this point is let's do this. Let's take our break, and I'll pick up this last page when we come back before we begin our first of our parenting sessions. So next is, is small groups. Do we have a break before that, or are we going straight to small groups now? Stretch break. Stretch and coffee refill. I think this is yours, brother. So there's been a communication breakdown. There's been uh, some kind of a conflict. Someone's been hurt. You're kind of working through this. Is this something I should overlook? Is this something I should address? <clears throat> and, uh, and someone has been convicted of their need to ask forgiveness. <clears throat> or perhaps you're, you tried confronting your spouse. They were defensive and prickly, didn't agree, and didn't ask forgiveness. Uh, nevertheless, sometimes communication is going to be restored by granting forgiveness. So if I'd been asked to come and teach on roles of men and women, and we were talking about the roles of women, before I would <clears throat> presume to try to instruct a woman as to what it means to submit, I would probably have to spend 30 or 40 minutes talking about what submission is not before I could ever sort of have a lot to, a lot of bad teaching about submission and false ideas to debunk before I could begin to define the term biblically. <clears throat> I feel a very similar obligation when it comes to talking about forgiveness in human relationships. So let's do some debunking of what forgiveness is not before we begin to address together what, what forgiving is. So here's my, my definition at the top of the page in your handout there. Forgiveness is the unconditional relinquishing of one's right to personal revenge or payment for those who wrong us. What is that unconditional relinquishing based on? Based on God's lavish forgiveness of our sins. The basis is, is that God lavishly, generously forgives. And from that basis, what I want to do is simply say in my heart, you wronged me. You owe me, and I'm not going to make you pay. That's what Jesus did, as we read in 1 Peter 2.23. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. So if even the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, in submission to his heavenly Father, could relinquish the right and leave that with God, how much more are you and I required to relinquish that right and leave it to the Lord? So let's talk for a minute about what this forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not mustering the ability to forgive and forget. Isn't that what the world says? If forgive and forget. There are some wrongs that have been committed to you that you will never be able to forget. And that does not mean you can't forgive. Or remembering it doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. Uh, there are deep pains and traumatic injustices and horrible things that happen on a fallen world that you're not going to be able to forget. And God doesn't require you to. Even the Lord himself does not forget our sins. He actively chooses not to remember our sins. Think about that for a moment. How can an omniscient God, a God who knows everything, could never forget anything? He can never unknow something. 
And so God knowing about our sin and still loving us in Jesus is actually more marvelous than God having, God having spiritual amnesia and forgetting about my sin. So he, he has full knowledge of my sin, has poured his justice on Christ instead of me, and loves me through Jesus Christ. But he doesn't forget my sin. So you don't have to forget. What you will be obligated to do is this. Every time you remember to say, I forgive again. Forgiveness is an event and a process. So when you have a, 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 remind, a reminder of something that happened to you wrong, you don't want to sit there and enjoy replaying it, savoring the, the delicious taste of bitterness. <clears throat> there is a buzz that comes. <clears throat> Excuse me, there's an energizing kind of buzz that comes. You know what it's like. You replay the wrong committed against you. It's, it's a horrible thing that we're capable of. So when you remember again, you for, you'd say, I, 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 that's true, that happened, it was wrong, and I have chosen not to pursue in any way. I'm not looking for repayment. So it's not forgive and forget. Once I had a precious friend of mine, uh, and I... I sinned against him, and I didn't stand up in, in a meeting and defend a brother as I should have. And uh, <clears throat> that wasn't common in this relationship, but in a moment of fear of man and weakness, I didn't speak up. And so later I asked my brother to forgive me. And then about six months later, something similar happened, not in a pressure meeting, but just kind of in a hallway conversation. I found me, myself cowering, worrying about personal opinion and you know protecting my own turf and uh, just in the privacy of my heart, again, I just should have spoken up. So I went to my brother again and, and asked his forgiveness. And, and he said, of course, I forgive you. It's no big deal. He said, I forgive you. And I said, yeah, but this is just like what happened six months ago, remember? And he looked at me with a smile and a twinkle in his eyes and said, mm, I distinctly remember forgetting that. <laughs> Those were comforting words. I've not held that against you. He said, you've borne so many blows for me. You've taken so many bullets for me. You know, over these years, if you can point to two times that you weren't willing to suffer, uh, I said, I forgive you. That's, so it isn't forgetting, it's forgiving, it's choosing. So as often as you remember it, you don't have to lie and say it didn't happen. We don't deny, we don't pretend away. You say it happened, it was wrong, and I, I remember and re-ratify my decision to seek no repayment. It's not minimizing sin. Is, haven't you, weren't you taught growing up it's polite if somebody says, I sinned against you, please forgive me. And what are you supposed to say? Well, kind of like what my friend said. Nah, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. In his heart, it really wasn't a big deal. But you're not obligated to minimize some sin as if it was a, if it was a big deal. You don't have to say uh, no big deal if it was a big deal. So being polite uh, is not what the Bible's requiring, some, some social formula of politeness. And God doesn't minimize our sin. When he forgives us, does he saying it's no big deal? I mean, the cross is documentation. There hangs the God man. That's God's way of saying nothing less than this could pay for what's wrong with you. So I would say God maximizes our sin. He does not minimize it. You're not required to minimize sin that's committed against you. <clears throat> you can have a realistic assessment of it. Forgiveness is not condoning sin. Some of you fear that if I forgive, especially if the person hasn't even asked for my forgiveness, they haven't acknowledged it, if I were to forgive them in my heart of hearts, isn't that like endorsing it? Is it that would be the ultimate. I'm going to minimize it to the point that now I'm, I'm like condoning it. I have uh, dear friends, members of our church who suffered 
several murders in their home on Thanksgiving Day and somehow felt for years that if I forgave the murderer, it would be like endorsing sin. It would be like saying it's not wrong to take life. Understand how you've got to keep clear. That's why I say when you remember a sin, you can say to yourself, that's true. It happened. It was wrong. But in the light of what I've been forgiven, how could I hold even the sin of murder against anyone? That is a test of faith, is it not? So you're not minimizing sin. You're not condoning it. Forgiveness is also not sudden, warm feelings of affection for the wronged party. I don't think this couple that I'm counseling through their grief is, ever needs to feel warm feelings of affection for the murderer, nor need you suddenly have warm feelings of affection in that moment. It's a volitional decision. I've decided not to make you pay for the wrong you've committed against me. And so, will warm feelings of affection come? It sort of depends. Uh, you must love them with or without warm feelings of affection. And since biblical love is not just warm, gushy feelings, so emotions may get into it. Sort of depends on the level of trauma and sin that was committed against you. But when you're saying, I forgive you, what you aren't saying is uh, all, all, all emotions are also back intact. That's why sometimes you may find yourself saying, Tandy, you'll say, Do you forgive me? And I'll say, uh, I'm obligated by the gospel to forgive you. I'm on the path right now of forgiving you. I can't tell yet whether it would be a lie to say I forgive you because I still feel angry. And I'm not even saying I have a right to that anger. I'm just admitting it's there. But I'll say this, in those moments I'll at least say the ball is officially in my court and I will come to you when I have greater clarity and I'm certain, yes, I, it shouldn't have taken me this long to get there. That's a sign of weakness and maturity in me, but here I am, and yes, I forgive you. Sorry it took me some time. I should be quicker and better. Two more important things. Forgiveness is not equal to trust. And then you'll see further down, it is not synonymous with reconciliation. They're two different things. I am commanded in God's word, and you are as well, to freely forgive you, just as I am commanded to love you, whether you love me or not, you'll never earn my love. You'll never earn my forgiveness. I am to give them away freely, even unilaterally if I must. Even if you never ask, I'll forgive. But trust is another matter. Trust is conditional. Trust is, um, yeah, I'm not commanded to freely give it. As a matter of fact, search your Bible in vain. You'll never be told to trust in a person. You will just continually be pressed to trust in the Lord. And of course there are people you're going to trust. It's a part of love. So let me, let me distinguish. Where the law of love, unconditional, unearned, and the law of conditional and earned trust, where they bump up against each other is very important. If you ever hear yourself saying something like this, I don't trust you and I never will. That's not a breach of the law of trust. That's a breach of the law of love. Love would say, I don't trust you right now, but I long for you to become a person I can trust. And I will not withhold trust any longer than wisdom deems necessary. And so saying I forgive you is not the same as saying I absolutely trust you and that we'll never discuss this again or there, there isn't accountability that needs to be put into place. Let me take it out of the realm of marriage. 
into, let, let's say we, we've got young drivers at home. We have a, our youngest child is just about to get her driver's license. And, and uh, let's say that uh, one of my young drivers wrecked and totaled a car. Uh, and then so we maybe did a little more driving school, a little more training, and, and eventually they get another car. But I'll tell you what, if they totaled that car, and they come with their palms out looking for a set of keys to go somewhere, I would say to them, I love you unconditionally. And I long for you to become a driver I can trust. This has nothing to do with love. I've forgiven you for what happened. I told you not to be on your phone texting while you drove and you did it anyway, right? So it's not like nobody hit them, it's their fault. I forgive you. You're still a Murray. You're not getting kicked out of the family. There's no question about your love, whether you're loved by me or not. But I can simultaneously say I love you. And when it comes to this, I don't trust you. As a matter of fact, I'd be a fool to trust you right now. It wouldn't even be good for you for me to trust you right now. So again, I'm motivated by mercy. Not I'm protecting me from ever feeling that hurt again. That's not love. That's self-love. But for your good and for the good of others in Jupiter, Florida, innocent people who you keep running into, I'm not giving you another set of keys. There could arise an issue in your marriage where you would say, I love you. You don't have to earn that. I forgive you. You don't have to earn that. But in this area of our life, I cannot just blindly trust you. But I long for you to become a man or a woman that I can trust. In that sense, forgiveness, while related, is not synonymous with trust. So the, in some situations where you're saying, I forgive you, what you are not saying is, and I fully, without any accountability or any further conversation, trust you, but I can love you, and I do forgive you. Similarly, related, you'll see in your notes there, forgiveness is not synonymous with reconciliation. Let me explain what I mean. If I've tried to speak to you about a sin and you're defensive and you won't receive it or you deny it outright, that's not true, that doesn't happen, then at that moment what I'm going to be faced to do is forgive you though you aren't asking and forgive you though you do not see it. But if I have to forgive you as a solo rather than the duet, reconciliation, think of it this way, reconciliation is always a duet. It takes two to reconcile. I can forgive as a solo, but when forgiveness in the exchange is happening as a duet, then reconciliation is possible. If I have to forgive you alone and you don't acknowledge your sin, then what I'm doing is, is keeping myself healthy, uh, avoiding the spiritual cancer of bitterness in my soul. I can be right with God, but until you acknowledge the sin, I, I'm going to love you and serve you, but we're not really right with each other. And so saying I forgive you alone means uh, I protect myself and my conscience is clean before God, but there's going to be a glitch in our relationship. I'm not going to magnify the glitch. I'm not going to camp out on the, on the barrier. Uh, I'm going to pray that the Lord would remove it, and I'm going to love you and serve you, but trust, reconciliation is still bruised. It's, there, there, there's, a, there's a minimization that occurs. Let me give you an example. My father uh, was, at the time was, I, I don't know if my dad died in Christ or not. I had the privilege of teaching my father through the entire Gospel of John. Uh, so I have, I have hope 
but no certainty about my father's conversion. But at one point in his life, when he was, certainly was not a believer, he was getting some counsel and had a desire to patch things up with his adult kids. And so he flew to the city where I was living and took me to lunch. This is, I don't have a close relationship with him, and we've never really talked about anything substantive. And he sits down and, and says to me, uh, shortly into the lunch, he said, I, I want you to tell me how I hurt you growing up so that I can ask you in detail to forgive me, which was an absolutely profound and shocking moment. First thought that went through my mind was, Lord, there must be a million men who need to hear this more than me. Uh, I, my, I was not abused except maybe benign neglect. Um, so I wasn't close, but I... I, I <laughs> I, I counsel men every day who had truly awful childhoods who would have needed to hear that more than I did. So I felt, I felt blessed and grateful to hear that sentence. And what I was able to say to my dad was, uh, Dad, I forgave you a long time ago. And I, he wanted, so I gave him some examples of some highlight moments that were difficult for me. And he asked my forgiveness. If I'd already forgiven him, then why was that conversation so meaningful? Because for the first time in my life, we had a shot at having a real relationship. Not a shallow one, not a phony one, not a fake one, not an ignoring one. So I'd already forgiven him. I wasn't bitter. I did not hate my father. I forgave you a long time ago, Dad, as a solo. But now, maybe for the first time ever, we could sing a father-son duet. And that's why it can be meaningful. But I still think spiritually we can separate the two and say, you know, forgiveness, it's not the same as trust. It's not the same as reconciliation. One final thing forgiveness is not is forgiveness is not contingent on the offender's acknowledgement of the sin. Reconciliation is. So let me just, let's just put it in an extreme version. So when, when uh, a woman and her husband, say, would come to my office, or a woman, I don't meet with women alone, and so a woman comes with another woman in our church, and and begins to describe um, incestuous abuse that occurred to her as a girl. And she's trying to figure out what does forgiveness look like? If I forgive my uncle, am I gonna be required to? You know, she's terrorized at the thought of being with this traumatic man. If I, if I confront him, uh, and, 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 or he won't speak to me, or he, well, let's say, typically what would happen is I have confronted, and he denies it ever happened. Now what do I do? Am I just stuck with bitterness the rest of my life? No, we must purge your soul of the life-threatening sin of bitterness. And you can forgive this man, but that does not mean you automatically trust him. Do you see how important this is? When you push it into these extreme cases of extreme and dangerous sins, then you begin to see, look, it, it's very important to say you must forgive him. In the light of the gospel, you're obligated. How could you not forgive him? But no, you don't reconcile with him until he were to acknowledge it. You don't trust him. doesn't mean you go to his house and pretend like nothing ever happened. And so it's important. But, but boy, then if you're going to set up these boundaries, do you see all the complicated tensions of, so if I'm going to set, you know, I'm not going to go be with him, then the temptation to enjoy returning evil for evil in just a little bit of way. It's, I'm not saying this isn't complicated. I'm not oversimplifying the process. We're just trying to lay bare the absolute foundations and, and define our terms so that we, when we hear the scriptures call us to forgive one another, 
We understand what the Bible is and is not calling us to do. It's important stuff. And this is real life. And there's probably no relationship in the world where you have more opportunity to sin, be sinned against, and forgive and seek forgiveness than your marriage and with your kids. Family life is the place where it happens. So reconciliation is the goal. Reconciliation is the goal. Reconciliation is based on what's it motivated by? God reconciling us through Christ. We were had an enemy status with God from the moment we were born, though we did not know it. The scriptures reveal it to us, and reconciliation occurs through Christ for believers, and that's the basis of our reconciling with others. The goal of seeking and granting forgiveness is for the restoration of a relationship and the requisite trust that would come with it. There are basically two words in the New Testament that are used for forgiveness. One of them means to, to, to free up or to lift up, and it's, almost, it's exclusively used in the New Testament to speak of God's forgiveness of sinners. The word that's used in horizontal forgiveness, the forgiveness we grant to one another, is, is a word that's based, it has the word charis in it, it has the word grace in it. It, has, it, it's, it emphasizes graciously forgiving. It's, it's, so it gets translated, forgiving from your heart. Look at Ephesians 4. We looked at this passage last night, but look at it again in the light of what we're discussing now. When we're commanded to forgive others, it's this word to graciously forgive. Verse 31 of chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. We looked at that at some degree of closeness on Friday night. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. There's, there's this command, graciously forgive. Graciously forgive, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When he says forgive just as God forgives, he does not, that's not a method. In the exact same manner in which God forgives sin, you forgive sin. Can, do you have an atoning sacrifice to offer for your sin? Do you, does your spouse have to offer you an atoning sacrifice? No. We don't, for, we don't forgive in exactly the same manner God forgives. This verse is giving us a motive for forgiveness. The motive of forgiveness, the overflow is God in Christ has forgiven me. How did he forgive you? Lavishly, generously, freely, graciously. And that's what we're being called to do with one another. So forgiveness is not forgive and forget. It's not minimizing. It's not condoning. It's not a sudden emotional feeling. It's not exactly the same as trust, though related. It's not exactly the same as reconciliation, though that is clearly the goal. I can forgive you alone. I just can't be reconciled to you alone. So I can be unembittered. I can love you, serve you. If you're lost, I can continue to share the gospel with you. But a real reconciliation cannot occur until we're, we're both acknowledging that the sin happens. That's why it's so meaningful for like me with my dad. After all those years of cultivating, not making him pay in my mind, not returning evil for evil, not being bitter, that's why it was so meaningful when he said, I acknowledge a lot of bad things went on with you growing up. And by, that, by the time he asked me, I was a father, and I have to say the same thing. I've committed great sins against my kids too, Dad. I forgave you a long time ago, but this is very meaningful because now we have a shot at being reconciled to one another. 
That's the goal. One time I was in a high-powered meeting between another Christian leader. I be, uh, became aware of some sin in his life, and uh, it was ugly and messy and unpleasant. And I'm in this high-powered meeting, and I should have walked out of the meeting when at the beginning of the meeting, the person moderating this attempt at reconciling said, look, the goal of this is not for you two as couples, because it was the wife who began talking to Tandy about some pretty serious sin in her husband's life. She began, she began to tell me, I said, you need to tell her to either stop talking to you or that she's obligating me to speak to her husband, and that may be what she's hoping will happen. That was what she hoped. So I confronted the husband. The whole thing escalates, you know, big parachurch ministry in our city. And the beginning of the meeting, it was said, the goal of this meeting is never for the two of you. And we were close friends. Our boys celebrated all their birthday parties together. We were in school together, and now there is a massive fissure of multiple years. While sin is covered and denied, and it was just a mess. The beginning of this meeting, <clears throat> the goal of this meeting is not for the two of you to ever be able to have warm conversation or like ever go to dinner together again. The, we, just need to, we just need to get forgiveness on the table. Being translated means at the end of this meeting, we are permanently putting a sock in your mouth, Mr. Murray, and you won't speak of this sin again. But we have no desire to reconcile the four of you. Looking back, I was young and scared. I should have just walked out of the meeting and said, if the goal isn't long-term reconciliation, then we're not pursuing a biblical process. And I'm not saying that after all the, the difficulty that tomorrow we'd be able to have dinner and it would be normal. But if that's not the goal to restore us to Christian fellowship again, then we're wasting our time. Reconciliation's the goal. Sometimes God will grant that to you, and sometimes he won't. And you've got to be content and ready to be submissive with that. And in the meantime, purge your soul of the bitterness that would threaten your spiritual life. So I suspect that that will lead to some interesting questions in not this session, but the, uh, the, the divided session between uh, men and ladies. But um, it's complicated. It's nuanced. But the Bible's not mute or confusing on this matter. And uh, I do recognize that there are others who would say, there, there are people in the body of Christ, it's fair that you should know, who would disagree with what I just said and said, you cannot forgive technically someone who doesn't ask. Uh, I believe they, they take that Ephesians 4.32 and make you forgive as God forgives and make that a method rather than a motive. And they would say, well, God doesn't forgive sinners who don't ask for his forgiveness. So I don't forgive sinners who don't ask for my forgiveness. My short rebuttal of that would be this. First of all, you're taking a verse that was encouraging free and full forgiveness and suddenly making it a stricture. Secondly, I would say this. Do you really think that between here and heaven you have actually asked God to forgive you for all your sins? If I had a heart attack today, I could die with a clean conscience as far as I know. But do you not think that my Heavenly Father sees sin in my heart today that I do not see, and because I do not see it, I have not asked His forgiveness? Don't you, don't you look back 10 years ago and see all kinds of things you see today that was messed up about you 10 years ago? You weren't even dealing with that stuff. You didn't see it. Our Father gently, slowly reveals our sin to us. If He showed it all to us at one moment, if He showed me, me, as He sees me, I wouldn't survive. And so that, that would be my short answer is, I can't forgive exactly as God forgives. Yes, he forgives those who ask for forgiveness. But if you're going to push that all the way to its absurdity, then 
then you're saying only the sins that I see today am I forgiven for? Paul said, I know of nothing in my conscience, but by this I am not acquitted. Just because I, my conscience isn't firing doesn't mean uh, th there's not sin there I don't see. So, uh, so I just want to acknowledge to you there is a, a movement in the body of Christ. It's called transactional forgiveness. Uh, I, I used to believe in that. Further study has led me away from that position to the position I've shown you today. The majority of what I've said today is, is not, there's no controversy or disagreement about that within the body of Christ anywhere. But I, I do want you to know there are some books that would uh, differ and we can talk more about that if you wish. So, Now what happens? 